Keep up with local news and events. Rich Larson hosts a daily newscast Monday through Friday, as well as updates and other community news. And it's free. Stop by KYMNRadio.net frequently and look for updates on our Facebook page for news stories and community events. KYMN Radio is 95.1 The One. GreatSeating.com National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of National Security This Week. It's September 1st already. That's amazing to me, but uh, we're, we're jumping right into it. So we get together here on KYMN Radio each Wednesday morning to discuss national security. We're joined each week by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. We're going to discuss defense contracting work today, but we're going to do so with a very special Minnesota and Upper Midwest spin on the topic. Our guest today is Chip Langan, a retired commander in the U.S. Navy and now executive director of the Defense Alliance. I'll ask Chip to tell us in detail about the Defense Alliance, and through our discussions, you'll learn more about his background. I'll highlight here that Chip Langan has been a leader everywhere he's served, both on active duty in the U.S. Navy and throughout his civilian career. So, Chip Langan, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. Good morning. It's good to be in uh, Northfield with a fellow retired commander. <laughs> yeah. my, my dad went to St. Olaf right across the river, so it's All right. great All right. to be here. Yeah. So uh, it, 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 we have a lot to cover today, uh, so if, if it's okay, I'd like to go ahead and get started. There, there's uh, a, a number of things that I think our audiences are going to find really fascinating. I want to start, though, uh, with a little bit about your career, your life. Uh, I happen to know you grew up in a family where your dad was a, a State Department career foreign service officer. You spent time in some interesting places as a kid, uh, including a place that has been uh, very much in the news lately. Uh, what do you remember from your time as a kid in Afghanistan? It was a big adventure. I was uh, eight years old when I arrived in Kabul and uh, 12 years old when I left. So I remember it well. Uh, and it was... Um, what years know, were those? 1968 to 1972. Okay. Uh, and that was... a. Uh, great period for the American presence in Afghanistan. We were building a lot of the infrastructure, uh, modern infrastructure that's still there to this day, the, the highway system, the dams, the bridges. Um, a lot of that has survived over the past 50 years. Uh, and it was, again, as a child, it was such an amazing place to be uh, with strong, interesting people. Uh, and, and in terrain that, it's, I, you know, look at the news and you see desert and mountains and certainly that's the bulk of the country but i remember lush forests and rivers and just a fascinating place to be as a kid yeah and i've, I've actually heard stories about that that there used to be these uh, dramatic beautiful forests that i think most yeah. of them got cut down during the civil war to yeah. provide f fuel for you know, heat and, and cooking for a lot of people yeah, unfortunately sad. so uh, and then uh your dad happened to be at the u.s embassy in Tehran, Iran, in 1979. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, situation? So actually, uh, we were talking about this earlier. My, my father was with me in the summer of 79, uh, showing me the University of Minnesota before I started there uh, as a freshman. And he got the call from the State Department saying, hey, uh, Bruce, we want you to go to, to Tehran, uh, temporary duty, just six weeks, to take over the embassy as the senior diplomat and then eventually to be elevated to the ambassador position 
Uh, sort of a, have I got a great deal for you? Exactly. <laughs> and he found out later that they'd gone down the list of people that had served there previously. Uh, they called Smith, and he said, no way in hell. They called Johnson. I'm not going. They get to Lang, and they said, yeah, he, he never says no to anything. <laughs> so sure enough, he, he raised his hand, as he always did, and, and went and served like he did in, in 1953. And he uh, he sent a famous cable that thankfully is on file that said uh, uh, to the State Department, whatever you do, don't let the Shah into the U.S. in the fall of 79, or, or there's a chance that they – might get a, a tad upset about that and take hostages, and sure enough, that's what happened. So he he stayed for the whole 444 days uh, of that crisis. And uh, I'm watching the news lately about Afghanistan and um, the resurgence of militant Islam, and uh, the the narrative, of course, seems to always be, well, this began in 9/11 in 2001, and I always say, no, it really began in. Uh, November of 1979. That was the first instance of militant Islam acting out against the West and finding out that they could do it rather successfully mm-hmm. uh, with essentially asymmetric warfare. Yeah. And we've been fighting that same war ever since. Yeah, multi-generational uh, challenge, uh, strategic, long-term strategic challenge. Uh, so you just mentioned you, you attended the University of Minnesota and you were commissioned in the U.S. Navy through the NROC, NROTC program uh, at, at the U. You became a naval aviator, a helo pilot. Uh, what leadership lessons did you learn while you were serving in the U.S. Navy uh, that you still apply regularly today in your civilian career? I always ask uh, hmm. my guests who, who've been in leadership positions uh, about leadership. Yeah, it's interesting. We, like you, uh, we go through four years of officer training to uh, enter the service, and we think, boy, we, we've got four years of a, of a degree and from a from a college or in your case the naval academy and we're leadership experts right and you find out very quickly <laughs> no you're not not even close uh and it took me 21 years to figure it out uh throughout a career and it's it's you learn like anything in life the things that matter you learn them the hard way and you learn them from people that really do it well yeah that have come before you and for me you know i i ended up doing a command tour in the navy and just before commanders take over a squadron or a ship or a submarine, they go to the Navy's command leadership school. And I'll never forget the instructor that came in that day to introduce himself to this class of 15 commanders, whatever we were. He, he went up to the whiteboard and just wrote one word, influence. And he said, leadership is influence. Mm-hmm. It's nothing else. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, we had an hour-long discussion about that. And, and for me, that, that's always stuck with me because uh, people look at us, and when I entered the civilian world, they look at someone like me or you, and they say, well, you just ordered things, and they happened. No. <laughs> yeah, no, right? Human nature exists in the military <laughs> as well, right? It, nothing changes. And uh, influence is everything. People want to be led. Uh, they want to understand why they're being led, what the objective is. And, and the American soldier and the American sailor – and airmen's and Marines and Coast Guardsmen, they, 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 they want to know the purpose of the mission. Right. They want to be influenced. They don't want to be directed. Right. And to have effective influence, there's so much that goes with that, right? You have to develop trust. Right. You have to understand how to effectively communicate. There's so many elements that go into that to build you up to be an effective leader from an influence standpoint. That's what really sticks with me. And, that, and the same thing in the commercials, the civilian world. Uh, if you're a CEO of a company, uh, you're not going in the right direction unless you're influencing people 
and making them want to be there yeah. and understand the purpose uh, for which they're there. Um, the other thing for me on leadership is is um, the term servant leadership, yeah. which I'm sure you're well aware of. Uh, and for me, what that really means is, and especially as the more senior you get, uh, you have to have a deep understanding of what motivates people. Mm-hmm. And you have to end up serving those motivations and serving those needs. Yeah. In fact, the more senior you get, the more you have to serve your people. And that is effective leadership. Uh, there's a, a, the famous uh, Prussian general, Frederick the Great, who uh, had a theory about leadership. He said the most effective officers are the ones that are brilliant and lazy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he yeah. said the worst ones are the ones that are brilliant and industrious. <laughs> and it's a little bit of an overstatement, and those are his words. But what he was saying was, yes, officers, okay, we're more educated perhaps. Um, maybe we have, after 21 years, a lot of um, experiences under our belt. But, you know, you understand the, strate- the strategic nature of things what hill we're going to take, don't tell them how to take the hill. Yeah. You know, serve them. Serve their needs so that they can effectively go and do that and understand the purpose in that process. So what, I'm, what I think I'm hearing is uh, when you're in a leadership position, it should never be about you. It needs to be about your people, their hopes and dreams, enabling them to perform their job and in a way where they understand what, why it is they're doing what they're doing. Exactly, and, and that has to be authentic. Yeah. That has to be genuine. And, and as you know, the average sailor... They can spot authenticity the minute they see you open your mouth. That's right. Yeah. So there's a high degree of emotional intelligence needed if you're going to be an effective leader. Absolutely. So how did we do it? I don't know. But yeah, I don't. We, I we still can't it. figure it out yeah. myself. <laughs> so your background is also very uh, strongly academic in, in nature. You earned advanced degrees from both the Humphrey School and at Tufts University. Uh, and in this position you have today, and we'll get into that shortly, but how important is education for the future of our nation and certainly for the state of Minnesota? Well, it's, it's, it's everything. I, I've, I've been a lifelong learner. I like to believe that I continue to be. Uh, and that's everything from technical knowledge to emotional knowledge, which you just touched on. Um, I, I think our nation is at risk in a lot of ways, uh, in part because we're starting to uh, learn some of the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into that. Uh, but one thing we should be pursuing is uh, a much richer education base around science and technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese are overcoming us in that sphere. Right. Uh, technology is the future, and we've, we've got to do something to repair that and get to the basics in education from K-12 on up. I'm, uh, I'm a professor, an adjunct professor at uh, the University of Minnesota in a program called the Technological Leadership Institute. And we stress that leadership aspect of having technology uh, be one of the reasons we lead in the world. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a great program. We have three master's degree programs, management of technology, uh, security studies, and medical device innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it is, it is technology specific, but again, that overarching aspect of leadership in the industry and in the world uh, is critical, and we've got to get back to that. So for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Chip Langen, Executive Director of the Defense Alliance here in Minnesota. 
Uh, okay, so Chip, uh, we've covered some of the background, or the groundwork, I should say. Let's get into the core of our discussions. You lead the Defense Alliance. Uh, can you please tell our audience what, what exactly is the Defense Alliance? So let, let me tell you that story by, by going back to its origins. Uh, I retired in 2004, uh, not knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up. I was a naval aviator and did other things in the Navy, like speech writing and uh, <laughs> yeah. for, teaching. For SECNAV, I believe. Is for that the right? SECNAV, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> and, uh, and actually teaching at the University of Minnesota as an ROTC instructor mid-career. Uh, but I came up here not knowing really what I wanted to do. Um, ended up getting connected to a small um, family-owned wire and cable company uh, in St. Paul called Minnesota Wire. And uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine now who was at Lockheed at the time said, you should go talk to the CEO because they make some really cool stuff for us, but they really don't know what they're doing when it comes to defense contracting. <laughs> and and uh, I said, well, I don't, I don't either. I was a helicopter pilot. I don't know much of anything. And she said, no, 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 this is Minnesota. They don't, they don't know that. <laughs> so just go over and talk to this guy. So he was just starting his defense division at the time. And he said, why don't you, why don't you lead that and stand that up? Uh, and he, speaking of China, he, he was looking at his industry saying, you know what, wire and cable's not that hard. Uh, the Chinese are making it now. The, uh, they're making it in Mexico. And they're making it for a lot less. Uh, and the second thing was, wire and cable hadn't changed in 100 years. Yeah. It still hasn't really changed. We're using copper. It's everywhere. And he, those two things really drove him. He said, you know, we need to transform the nature of wire and cable. And I need to figure out how to compete against China and Mexico. And he did that by going to uh, the Defense Department uh, because he knew they had a program called Small Business Innovation Research, SBIR, where 11 federal agencies have to spend, I think it's 3.5% now of their budget on innovation with small businesses on R&D projects. It's a Reagan program that's – been perpetuated ever since. Great program. Drives innovation in the U.S. Right. That's good strategic investment. Absolutely. And it's a non-dilutive investor if you're a small business. It's fantastic. So this CEO went to uh, me and said, go figure that out. (laughs) Uh, We did it together. Um, But we got a whole bunch of R&D money into the company. Uh, 20 years later now, roughly, that company has, they went from a job shop, basically, to a company that has... uh, uh, wholly transformed wire into carbon nanotube wire. There's no metal in it. It's invisible to radar. It's lighter. lasts forever. Uh, and it's on space vehicles. So here's a, here's a company that started at a kitchen table in Minnesota, and now they're putting wires in space. Uh, why do I tell you that story? We, we were learning lessons about defense contracting, mm-hmm. realizing that there was nowhere in Minnesota you could turn to learn how to do this, really. Yeah. So we created something called, well, we, we created a, a monthly meeting with other small businesses to share our lessons. And then we gave it a name, and then we gave it a website, made a challenge coin like military people do. <laughs> and I woke up one day and said, man, we got a big like organization here, a business alliance. And I said, crap, we didn't charge any membership dues. Now what? And so we kind of outgrew Minnesota Wire. We ended up with now 850 corporate members in 35 states. Uh, and nobody was paying dues for this. So I went to the Small Business Administration and got funding for our operations. And so now we are an SBA-funded uh, regional innovation cluster, Okay. part of the RIC 
program. There's 10 of them in the country. Uh, and I, I love it because we're a military-focused cluster. And if for those of you that have been in the military, cluster and military, it's kind of a <laughs> – yeah. I, I won't go there, but I think you know where I'm going. Um, it's perfect. Uh, and so now, you know, we've been funded since 2011, fiscal year 2011, um, roughly 500000 a year to work with small businesses and advance their bottom line through defense and federal contracting, just okay. like Minnesota Wire did. Okay. And so uh, what kind of specialties are embedded across uh, across the Defense Alliance and, and the companies that are in the Defense Alliance? Well, you, you name it, it's it's represented. The, the federal government, and specifically the DOD, I always tell people is the largest single customer in the world for anything. F-35s, absolutely. Um, napkins. Um, <laughs> syringes. Uh, medical equipment. Uh, tires, you name it. The, the, the DOD buys everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're the biggest driver of innovation in the nation by far. Uh, led distant second by the medical industry. Um, defense is still leading in terms of advancing tech. Um, and so as a result, um, the you know the spectrum of things that are done by small companies in Minnesota in our our footprint of 35 states is it's it's too there's too many to to list mm-hmm. uh there's a couple examples i like to to cite i've talked about minnesota wire uh, recon robotics is another great minnesota story they make uh throwable robots okay. um, for soldiers they look like little barbells uh handheld about i don't know what they are now maybe eight ten inches and they have wheels with a tube in the middle again like a little barbell and soldiers can throw them on top of a roof and pilot them remotely with a handheld device, I think a cell phone now. Uh, and this vehicle can send back audio, video, all kinds of sensor equipment uh, to detect bombs, whatever it is. That's all made right here in Minnesota. The, the leading experts on ground robotic equipment. And I think I've heard that, that some of their equipment, that ground uh, robot, they're almost indestructible. Oh, yeah, they're fantastic. They, they bring them to events, and they'll throw them against the wall. And, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. <laughs> they turn them on. They, they drive them down the, you know, down the road and send video back. It's, it's fantastic. Wow. Um, so that, that's, that's one example. There's, there's just countless others. There's bigger firms, too, MTS Systems. Uh, PAR Systems also does robotics in the Twin Cities. Um, University of Minnesota itself has um, dozens of startups Currently, they're working, some of them are working defense systems, everything from studying behavioral um, responses in leadership to, uh, you know, better sensors for biohazards in the water and things like that. So uh, it's called the Defense Alliance. A lot of the companies that are in there are uh, creating uh, technology that's very useful in the in the DOD side of things and national security side of things. But these are really I mean, advanced technology companies and how you operate, operationalize that advanced technology. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do that. So uh, the alliance is actually really moving forward on really advanced technology, RDT&E, right? Yeah, I mean, our, our goal is just to go after the high-tech high stuff. And, and if you look at the DOD list of top 10 RDT&E needs, it's mm-hmm. what you might expect. It's cybersecurity. It's... Uh, Artificial intelligence and machine learning, AI, ML. Um, it's advanced biosensing systems, uh, 
the, the University of Minnesota, you may not have heard this, they have a new um, DOD award. I think it's $81 million. Uh, it's called BioMade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have heard it, about. It. Maybe you could tell us, tell the audience what that. I don't is. know that much about it, but it's but it's looking at um, biomaterials for advanced uses, mm-hmm. and not not in the med tech world. This is uh, biofuels and things like that. Um, growing algae to power F-18s. Right. I mean, it's, it's, there's no limit to what we can do. Uh, so there's yeah, the DoD is very interested in that. The other thing too is it's a lot of these technologies come from adjacent industries that you might not expect. Uh, in the Fargo-Moorhead area, there's something called um, the Grand Farm. And that is Minnesota because it's Fargo-Moorhead. Uh, and it, they're creating the farm of the future up there. And a lot of ag tech, they have a huge plot of land. Microsoft is involved. Uh, Plug and Play, which is a big startup generator. And they have a, a piece of that farm that's going to be uh, entirely farmed by autonomous vehicles for two years. No human will touch it. Wow. And they're going to grow crops on it. Uh, DOD is interested in that because it's netted architecture for uh, autonomous systems. Uh, NASA's up there. They just had a big um, space ag tech um, conference, and DOD is interested in that because now we have the Space Force. Right, right. So the connections are everywhere, and uh, the, the high-tech spinoffs for that for commercial use, for civilian use, are, are unlimited. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later in the in the show, I think. Uh, so most people think about the defense industry giants like Lockheed, Boeing, General Dynamics, that kind of thing. How important are, are the smaller defense contractors to the overall uh, defense of our nation? Co- companies like those who comprise the Defense Alliance here in Minnesota yeah, and, it's huge. and across the upper Midwest. It's huge. We were talking earlier, a lot, a lot of the large defense companies that you just mentioned – have become larger because they've uh, merged together in some cases, they've consolidated. And what happens naturally, like any organism, uh, they they become things that really don't innovate mm-hmm. and they don't move quickly. Yeah, um, They bolt things together. Uh, and I'm exaggerating slightly and not to offend people in the audience that work for Lockheed, they do amazing things. Um, but if you look at an F-35, for instance, uh, the most expensive defense program in history. Right. Uh, we could talk about that separately all all day, right? <laughs> um, there's something like 3,500 suppliers that go into making that product, right? So the wheels are made by somebody else. The ball bearings are made by someone else. Um, so, so some part of that jet is built in, in all 50 states of the U.S. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's uh, a staggering amount of small businesses. And to Lockheed's credit, they corral that supply chain and figured out how to put it all in one place and assemble it, which is hard enough. Yeah. But those innovative subsystems, that's all, almost all small business driven. Wow. Uh, so for our audience, you're, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Chip Langen, who leads the Defense Alliance, uh, headquartered here in Minnesota. Uh, so, so, Chip, can you give us a sense of the scale of business contracts members of the Defense Alliance execute each year, maybe kind of a dollar figure as to the economic, economic impact the alliance brings to just, say, Minnesota's economy, for instance? Yeah, again, we have members in 35 states, right. and we actually have Lockheed Martin as a member, so uh, the number's pretty huge. But uh, <laughs> Minnesota, we, we our, our footprint, we like to say, is really kind of five states, okay. where we spend most of our time, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, to some degree, Iowa. Um, and I have breakdowns for all of those, but Minnesota specifically um, contributes about 3.5 to $4 billion a year 
uh, in defense contracts into the DOD enterprise, which wow. is pretty big. That puts us 30, 30, right now 31st among 50 states in terms of our contribution to um, DOD technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of other markers. Um, one of the things that I, I like to point out, too, though, that's interesting is Minnesota consistently ranks 49th or 50th among states in terms of the return on our tax dollar, which is it's an odd thing, and you have to look at what goes into that. Uh, some of that is we don't have really bases here very much. We have something up in Duluth. We have C-130s at MSP. Um, and so the states that rank higher, they usually have big base infrastructure. So, so you're talking about specifically for defense-related things? No, but it, DOD, I mean, the federal government broadly. Okay. So everything federal, the return on our tax dollar, we, we rank last. Oh, what we pay into and what we get what back. We get back. Ah, okay, okay, okay. And, and DOD is a big driver of that is yeah. the point. Yeah. Um, and some people say, well, that that's great. That's that's typical Minnesota. We don't need anybody else, right? We're independent. <laughs> we're, we're Scandinavians at our roots, right? And yeah. we, we don't need anybody else. Having said that, there's a lot of money out there that's being spent to drive technology. Sure. And other states are getting that money. We're not. Okay. And that's that's a huge overgeneralization. My point is we could do more to get more uh, into this state that we should and we should be doing that. And and states are North Dakota is investing heavily in that enterprise. Wisconsin is starting to and it's time for us I think to get back on the wagon so to speak. All right, so on that note, uh I I have to imagine some of your work with the Defense Alliance includes working with uh members of the state legislature, governor's office. Uh, regarding business incentives for defense contractors or advanced technology companies in general, since we have the the cluster here. Uh, What could Minnesota do to attract more defense contractors to our state? And the Defense Alliance in Minnesota is one of of America's advanced technology clusters uh, and and a center of excellence at that, frankly, for these advanced technologies. Uh, I personally am of a mind that we ought to grow that cluster, but, you know, what do you think is the best way to do that? So we have kind of three parts of our charter. Uh, the biggest piece is that direct consulting with small businesses to improve their bottom line, right? Uh, the second is advancing regional economy efforts. So we're helping Grand Forks with their autonomous cluster. We're mm-hmm. helping Grand Farm with their cluster. We're working in Wisconsin with an aerospace and defense effort. Uh, the third thing we do is uh, advocacy. Mm-hmm. To improve the defense contracting process uh, and things like what you're talking about, incentives to make it easier for small business to do business. Um, quick disclaimer, we're not allowed to lobby okay? because we get federal funds, right? Right. Uh, so that would be illegal. Sure. So we advocate instead. Yeah. I just changed the verb, you know. If you don't like it, come find me. Um, <laughs> so we, we advocate. One of the things we did uh, about 10 years ago is we worked with two other clusters. Uh, there used to be three advanced defense technology clusters. We're the only one left. But we worked and advocated with the Congress to make sure that the DOD would pay contractors um, that are doing defense work on net 15 terms. And if you're a business owner, you know there's those terms, net 30, net 60, that's how long it takes to get paid when you do something. Um, The Defense Department now, by law, has to pay small businesses within 15 days of doing work. That's almost unheard of in the commercial world. Sure. Um, Does it always happen in in the DOD world? No. 
but it's in law and it's supposed to happen. So that's the kind of thing we get involved in to try to affect change. And, and I have to imagine on that point, uh, if you're a small business, and, I mean, you have very tight margins. You need Absolutely. your contracts paid for uh, on time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another thing that the um, Defense Department does, uh, and there's a lot of frustrations with defense contracting. I'll be the first to say that. But one of the things that uh, they'll do is if they need something badly enough, they will advance funds. Um, to make things happen okay. to small business. That's a whole different program we can talk about later. Um, specifically in Minnesota, uh, there is a challenge for us, I think, because um, you know the, the small business environment, the ecosystem, and the ability to do business easily matters. Uh, Minnesota is not high on the list in terms of being, quote-unquote, business-friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, like anything with statistics, you can find things that say they are, we are, other things that say we're not. I, I'm in the camp that says we're very close to the bottom in terms of being business friendly, especially for high-tech firms. Uh, our, our collective tax burden is extremely high, private and corporate. Mm-hmm. Uh, the regulatory piece is, is tough. Uh, labor is becoming increasingly difficult to get, yeah. even though this is you know, one of the most educated states in the country, we're not educating technology people. Yeah. We're producing a lot of BAs and that kind of thing. Um, so collectively, Minnesota could do better uh, to make this a more business-friendly state for innovative small businesses. Uh, so we just hit on a few things uh, in, in that in that response. So we talked, I asked you earlier about the importance of education to the future of our U.S. and, and Minnesota economy as an example. Uh, you teach at the at the University of Minnesota as an adjunct uh, faculty member. Uh, how, how about incentives that we could that the Minnesota state legislature sh- could put into place to help advance that technology education side, the the STEM education uh, for our kids growing up? Because we want to be nation. I think the national leader in education yeah. writ large, but especially in this high technology field. Well, I mean, the state has done, they've started to do some things. We have an R&D tax credit in place. Um, We have an internship program that the Minnesota Department of Employment and Economic Development uh, heads up, uh, Site Experience, I think it's called. Um, There are some some programs in place. There's there's matching funds for uh, SBIR work and proposals, Um, but but they're small. So they could, at the very least, plus up those programs, start to match what other states do. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, for me, it, it becomes a leadership issue, yeah. you know, back to leadership. You can incentivize things. You can create programs. But you have to have people on the same page advancing a cause, right? And when I say people, it's it's the governor's office. It's the commissioner of employment. Uh, it's industry leaders. It's the president of the University of Minnesota. If you look at places where... The defense industry specifically has taken off. Everybody was on the same page. Yeah, Huntsville, Alabama is a prime example. There's no reason that should become a defense center. It's the middle of nowhere if you've ever been there. Yeah, I know. It's I know. thriving now. <laughs> yeah, it, looks, it looks like Dubai in the yeah. forest. It's incredible. My, one of my old bosses who was the uh, the J-2 at U.S. Special Operations Command, I served as his, uh, his XO, uh, they call it in the Army terms, so I ran the entire administrative uh, 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 department or administrative section for the mm-hmm. Directorate of Intelligence. Um, he retired, went immediately to Huntsville. This was many years ago now, and he's been a top-level exec at a couple of different companies there, uh, and it's exploded in what they do at Huntsville. 
Yep. It's incredible. And, and again, the leadership, yes, there was incentives and tax issues and the political um, um, leadership brought money into the state. But again, you, you've got to have people talking about it. Yeah. You know, wh- where is the president of the University of Minnesota talking about defense contracting? Mm-hmm. Uh, why is there no secure compartmented information facility, a SCIF, right. located at the University of Minnesota? That's a good point. Every other <laughs> university has one. Yeah. Why don't we? Yeah. Um, and there's plenty of uh, uh, technology advancements being funded by DOD at the University of Minnesota that are, you know, a, a potential dual use that probably should have a, a skiff embedded at the U. Right, and, and I mentioned biomade, so yeah. so things are perhaps starting to change. But I again, I get back to the root of your question. I'd like to see more senior leadership talking about, and not defense contracting specifically, but just sure. engaging students about the need to be more technology-centric and savvy. Minnesota used to lead in technology. That's right. We don't anymore. Right. We, we do in certain areas, um, but we, we, could, we could come back in a strong way, I think. Yeah. We, 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 we have always been strong on education. Yeah. We may have slipped over the last decade or so, maybe longer, but we can get back there if, if we decide to do that, if that's a priority for us. Uh, so what partnerships does the Defense Alliance have with other business groups uh, here in Minnesota? Uh, the name Defense Alliance, I know it's an alliance of uh, defense contractors primarily, but I have to think that you're probably looking at other partnerships you can reach out to. Minnesota Business Partnership, for instance, is that a, a, an entity that you... We're not, and we should be. Well, okay. So thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> uh, Launch Minnesota, which is a startup organization at Minnesota Deed. Uh, we've worked with them. Uh, Enterprise Minnesota. Um, is the state's uh, Manufacturing Extension Partnership, MEP, uh, which is funded by NIST and a part by the state. Uh, That's a great program. It it advances uh, uh, manufacturing processes within companies, ISO systems. If you're a defense manufacturer, you should have your AS9100 certification, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Great organization. Um, Minnesota Technology, um, it has... Uh, MIN SBIR embedded in it. I mentioned the Small Business Innovation Research Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pat Dillon, another retired commander. Yeah, yeah I know Pat. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. She's another Intel person, too. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, she runs that program and brings a lot of defense dollars in through that SBIR program. Okay. Uh, and that that's a jump start for commercializing product. All right. um, so, yeah, there's some great organizations in the states. And, uh, and, and we again, we, we do a lot of the same things in other states as well. Okay. Uh, so, Chip, what, what are other things that you are working on these days? I, I know you've been involved in the commissioning uh, planning for USS Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, littoral combat ship, LCS uh, number 21, uh, being built in uh, over in Wisconsin, and uh, she's going to be commissioned in Duluth next spring, uh, probably May is what we think right now. H- how's that commissioning work coming along? Uh, it's been a long process, yeah. but it's going to be great when it's... Uh when it when it finally becomes a USS. Um, uh, before I get into that, real quickly, there's there's USS Minnesota. Yep, yep. That people should be aware of. If you're not, it's a submarine. Uh, it's representing us very well. It's been in commission for gosh, what seven years now at least. Yeah, at least, yeah. Uh, a Virginia class uh, fast attack. So. Yep, yep, attack submarine. Um, and a lot of Minnesotans serving on the ship. And actually, that was the first uh, submarine to integrate women into the force, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great claim to fame. But yeah, Minneapolis-St. Paul is a littoral combat ship uh, built in um, Marinette, Wisconsin. And a lot of Minnesota suppliers actually provide subsystems to that ship. Uh, It was supposed to be commissioned. It was launched, what, almost two years ago. Right. That's the christening ceremony where you do the champagne and it uh, gets shoved into the water and you see if it floats. And um, 
normally about a year later the, the crew gets on board it becomes a USS and that's the commissioning. The Navy didn't do it at first because we're producing so many of these things we didn't have the crew to put on it. Right. And then there was an engineering issue that had to be resolved. So that's going to be about two years late and we're hoping, hoping now that it'll be commissioned in May of 2022. Yeah. And the goal is to have that uh, the first U.S. warship commissioned in Duluth Harbor. So stay tuned to that because if you've never been to a ship commissioning, it's it's pretty exciting. Yeah, a, phen- a phenomenal event. Uh, yeah. a really a great thing for the state of Minnesota, frankly. And hopefully get the Blue Angels up here for that. That's too, right. So. That's right. So, Chip, we just have a few minutes left. Uh, what else would you like our listeners to know about the Defense Alliance? Here's, here's your opportunity to sort of plug the work that's being done, the importance of those small businesses. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Thank you. Um, well, you know, I, I get back to, uh, you know, our, our competition with China, and it is. Uh, we, we need to restore America's leadership in the world uh, in a lot of ways, uh, our moral leadership and our technology leadership. And one way to do that is to advance things like we're doing, is, is, is that collective effort to drive technology. And as, as the world has become more interconnected, uh, so as the need for businesses, I think, to be interconnected. Uh, we work with um, small businesses that we, we tend to vet them right away. Are they business ready and are they technology ready? And sometimes they'll have some great technology, but from a business perspective, they're not willing to share their IP or they don't want to talk about things. I, those days are over. Yeah. You know, they're going to steal your IP anyway. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're big advocates of, hey, put it on the table, find technology partners, uh, other small businesses to advance things together, uh, join alliances and associations like Defense Alliance, because we can bring a lot of resources to bear for you for free in most cases that you wouldn't otherwise know about. Uh, and so that you'll see a lot of these things happening, Grand Farm in North Dakota, the Autonomous Systems Cluster in Grand Forks, uh, Defense Alliance here. Uh, companies that are successful are part of these greater organizations that are getting together and, and working together. And that's it, exciting to see because I think people are doing it uh, more and more. All right. So, Chip uh, Chip Langan, thank you for joining us today on, on National Security This Week. Uh, this has been a, a, a great show. Uh, wh- wh- what, do, what are you working on just this week for your Defense Alliance members? Well, this is the highlight for the week for us. Oh, okay. <laughs> right? Actually, we're, we're, we're putting a proposal together actually for uh, Wisconsin okay. um, uh, on a uh, – uh, cluster type effort. The U.S. Economic Development Administration has a pot of money to grow technology clusters. So we're working on on them. So a little competition for Minnesota. All hey, right. get on board. Fair let's enough, let's fair do enough. that. Yeah. Can Com- I make one one final statement yeah, about yeah. this Afghanistan thing? As you said, you know, to come back to it at the beginning, I, I grew up there in part. Uh, love the people. Love the location. And I'm I'm just heartbroken this this week. Uh, yeah. By what's happened. Uh, and I I just point to the, you know. I don't want to finger point. I point to the people that have been there for 21 years and made us proud and done a lot of good things yeah. for people. Uh, the spirit of the American warrior is alive and strong. Yeah, and I think we, you and I talked about this before we got on there, but I think we were able to show young Afghans, you know, maybe 10 year olds when when this whole thing started. They're 30 now. Uh, a fundamentally different way to live your life. Yep. Uh, an opportunity, you know, freedom democracy yeah so maybe that will have a long-term impact yeah we planted seeds and we've done that throughout our history right and they tend to flourish eventually yeah it's a tough process to see how 
plays out sometimes, but I think in the end it's it's going to work. Yeah. Well, Chip Langan, again, thank you for joining us this week on, on National Security This Week. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of, uh, of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, I look forward to our show again at 9 a.m. next Wednesday morning, and I hope you'll join us. We'll, we're going to continue our discussion next week on transnational organized crime, uh, so don't miss the show. Uh, have a fantastic finished your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.